message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning, especially if you're a guest. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Galatians chapter 4. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about flying an airplane. Second, be listening for what the elementary principles of this world mean. What does Paul mean when he uses the phrase elementary principles? And lastly, be listening for how you might be more conformed to the image of Jesus. How might you practically be conformed more to the image of Jesus? Well, we're jumping back into our sermon series as we make our way through the letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. And this, as many of you know by now, was a letter necessitated by a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the Galatian churches after Paul had left. And these false teachers, known as Judaizers, were Jewish men who were trying to convince the Galatians that in order to be received into God's community, they needed to adopt Jewish cultural practices and customs. Primarily things like circumcision and dietary laws and keeping Torah. They said that belief in Jesus was all good and well, you can keep that, but the Galatians also needed to go a step further to ensure God's acceptance and favor by adopting these Jewish cultural identity markers. Well, upon hearing that the Galatians were buying into this false teaching, Paul grows perturbed. He's angry. You might say he's hot under the collar. After all, if you think about it, he has risked his life to preach the gospel of free grace to the Galatians. He risked his reputation even by calling Peter to account for his lapse of judgment back in chapter 2. He had spent enormous emotional and spiritual energy on making sure that the Galatians were on the right track when it came to Christian maturity. And now they've turned aside from the message that they had heard from Paul. And as Paul writes to the Galatians who had spent time with them, who knew them personally, he is not holding back. He asks, was all my work in vain? And can you imagine hearing that from a pastor? Reminds me of that great R.C. Sproul clip where he looks out at the congregation who are struggling to understand why God would be so severe with sin. And in exasperation, he exclaims, what's wrong with you people? He's taking a page out of Paul's playbook in a sense. Through the letter, Paul makes his theological arguments, sometimes with exasperation. But in this passage that we're about to read this morning, he changes his tone a bit, intentionally going back to the relationship that he shares and the love that he has for the Galatians. The passage we're about to read is maybe the most tender portion of the entire letter. It's a portion where we see an intimate picture of Paul's heart where we get a glimpse of just how emotionally and relationally engaged he is as the planting pastor of the Galatian churches. Paul isn't just a theologian. He's certainly that. But he's also a pastor with a warm heart towards those whom he brought to Jesus. In this passage, it's a marriage of head and heart, of teaching and pastoral care. And it's a reminder that these two things, they always go hand in hand. 
Some of you have likely heard how Young Life gets at this principle with their mantra, people don't know or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, Paul goes to great lengths to remind the Galatians how much he cares for them here. How he labors over them to see Christ formed more deeply in their life. I like how John Stott puts it when commenting on this passage that we're about to read when he writes, We have been listening to Paul the Apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith, but now we're hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. So let's turn our attention to Paul's pastoral counsel as we read Galatians chapter 4 beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, if you've ever flown on an airplane in foggy or cloudy weather, you know how easy it can be to sit back in your seat and wonder how in the world the pilots can see where they're going up in the cockpit. In fact, you can go to YouTube and get a glimpse of a view from the cockpit during stormy and cloudy and foggy weather. And if you do, if you go look at those videos, sure enough, you'll notice that you can't see a thing from those small cockpit windows. And in that situation where you've got no fixed reference point, it's easy, I would imagine, to lose your sense of stability. It's easy to get scared and begin to over or undercompensate based on how you feel. And as you know, feelings can be a really lousy indicator of what's actually happening externally. So what do pilots do? Well, it likely doesn't come as a surprise that I've never been an airline pilot. But I have heard that in moments when you can't discern up from down, when you have zero visibility, when you have no reliable point of reference on the horizon, you've got to stay focused on your flight instruments, the instruments that are right in front of you. Because spatial disorientation is a real thing that can have catastrophic effects. And your senses are liable to tell you things that contradict your instruments, but the instruments are actually interpreting reality. So, against your every inclination, you have to stay focused on your instruments, otherwise you risk disaster. 
A determined focus on the instruments that guide the plane is what's needed if you want to arrive safely to your destination, especially in rough weather. Well, staying focused on the thing that will lead us home is really the thrust of Paul's encouragement in the passage that we just read. We all know how or what can happen when we lose focus on the main thing, when our attention is pulled away from the ultimate goal. You hear about this in the business world or the military world when people talk about mission drift, where the organization gets pulled away from its main focus and the quality of their product or objective of their mission, and it all suffers. And it's always good to stay focused on what can guide us to our destination despite the rough weather that we encounter in life. It's always good to keep the main thing the main thing, isn't it? Well, in our passage, Paul invites the Galatians to recalibrate and to recalibrate specifically to Jesus, to turn their attention to him so that they might regain their focus. As we seek to follow Jesus, both individually and corporately as a community, there are lots of tangents that can pull us off the mission that we have been given to live in step with the gospel so that we might move out to share the gospel or good news with others. Remember, it was Paul who told the Corinthian church that he decided to know nothing among them except for Christ and Him crucified. Now, that's peculiar if you stop to think about it because there were lots of different good tangents that Paul could have focused on. There are even tangents that we wish Paul would have focused more on, if we're honest, because at least that would give us some grounding for wanting to encourage others to focus on the preferences and personal desires that we have. And Paul does address some of those tangents. Don't hear what I'm not saying. He addresses tangents in time. He seeks to help the Corinthians walk in newness of life, but he always ties them back to his gospel message. He was committed to staying away from making the tangents the main focus of his message and his mission. And there are lots of tangents that vie for our attention as we seek to follow Jesus with one another in community. We have what we might call theological and ethical tangents. And I don't use the word tangent pejoratively. That's not a negative word. It's just a word. A tangent can be a really good thing, in fact. Something that God has called you to pursue personally. But they tend to be matters of Christian liberty when we're talking about tangents. In other words, these tangents that we focus on uh, don't dictate whether or not someone is in Christ. We have freedom to make different decisions when it comes to what we might call tangents. And you can think of theological tangents. Things like your view of the end times. Your preference for worship style. What form and mode of baptism you prefer, those might be called theological tangents. They're important, but you've got Christian freedom there. You can think of ethical tangents, like your policy views on certain political issues, or the choice you make in educating your children, or what you prefer to see people wear when it comes to appropriate dress in church. Those things might be important, but you've got Christian liberty there. These are matters of Christian liberty where we have freedom to disagree as we seek to follow Jesus. They might even be important issues, but if we focus on them, if we make those things the main thing, if we add any requirements to faith in Jesus alone in order to belong, if we abandon Jesus as our main focus, then all the time and energy that has been poured into cultivating a community centered on the gospel 
through faith alone has been in vain. Our main focus, our supreme message, individually and corporately, is always the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Well, the Galatians had lost focus of that. They lost focus of the gospel. They'd allowed other things to slip in, and they began to add requirements for God's approval and for community acceptance. Remember, Paul has been making the case that the Galatians had been set free by Christ. But sometimes freedom can be too big and too scary. Sometimes we don't know what to do with the freedom that Jesus has given us. Sometimes captivity is easier. We just want rules to follow. Like Israel wanting to go back to Egypt back in the Exodus. When things got tough in the wilderness after they had been set free, they began to look at each other and said, at least we had food to eat back there. Even if we were slaves loaded down with hard burdens, at least we had some sense of security, some sense of what we should be up to. And that's the temptation the Galatians are experiencing in this letter. They're tempted to go back to old pagan gods they worshipped before God had set them free. And this is what Paul is getting at in verses 8 through 10 where he writes this. You can look at it with me. Verses 8 through 10. Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by Him, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now the phrase elementary principles, it's a bit cryptic. Paul uses this phrase three times in the New Testament. He uses it twice in Galatians, once in the book of Colossians. And it's one Greek word that refers to the building blocks of the physical world. Things like earth, fire, wind. It can also refer to celestial beings, even deities identified with stars and planets. Sometimes this phrase is used in the ancient world to refer to demons or to evil influences in this world, the elementary principles of this world. Now you have to remember that the Galatians were buying into the Judaizers' teaching that said you should believe in Jesus and be more Jewish. You should believe in Jesus and adopt Jewish cultures and customs if you really want to be accepted by God. In the Galatians, they're buying in. As Paul says in verse 10, they're observing days and months and seasons and years, meaning that they've already been pressured into keeping the Jewish calendar so that they might be accepted by God. And Paul is saying that, that that's going back to the elementary principles that you grew up with. Now follow me. If you follow Paul's logic here, it would have made the Judaizers very angry because of what he was implicitly saying. Because what were the principles that the Galatians grew up with? Well, they grew up as Gentile pagans. And Paul is saying that the Jewish obligations, adding anything on top of faith in Jesus alone, is no better than Gentile paganism, which would have been a shot across the bow to the Judaizers. In other words, legalism, according to Paul, is just as bad as horoscopes or zodiac signs or emperor worship. Both are based on the elementary principles of the world where you try to earn your salvation. When you take Jesus out of the equation, Paul is saying that keeping the Jewish law in order to earn God's love is just as bad as ritualistic paganism. It's going back to the idolatry that you used to practice. 
the Galatians are wandering from the gospel. As they adopt the rituals and customs of the Jewish culture, they're departing from Jesus. As they make those tangents primary, they're straying away from the Lord. And we can't look at the Galatians with too much disgust and belief because we're prone to do the same things all the time. We're prone to lose focus. You and I are prone to revert back to our old ways of life where we gravitate to the idols of comfort and approval and control, where we go back to the elementary principles of morality and legalism. We can see ourselves in the Galatians. And this loss of focus, it made Paul not only frustrated and angry, it also made him sad because he cared deeply for the Galatians even describing his work on their behalf as a mother seeking to give birth to a child to bring them to life and to set them on a path to maturity. His ministry in their midst was challenging. It was hard work. And Paul is sad because something had changed their relationship. We learned that it was some kind of illness that brought Paul to the region of Galatia and kept him there. We don't know exactly what the illness was. It's not explicit. But we do know it was repulsive in some way. Because he says in verse 14, Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. Some here guess that Paul could have had an eye disease that was hard to look at because he goes on to mention that the Galatians would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to Paul if they could. That was their relationship just a few years ago. They cared so much for Paul, that's what they would have done if he had asked. But now something has changed with the Galatians' affections for Paul. It's likely that the Judaizers came in and started speaking poorly about him. Poorly about his message. They tried to discredit Paul. Remember, the Judaizers were nationalistic. They were zealous to make people Jewish. They were seeking to separate the Galatians from Paul because Paul was telling the Galatians that they could keep their own cultural customs and still follow Jesus. And this threatened the Judaizers' power and control. The Judaizers were zealous for national identity markers, circumcision, dietary laws, but Paul wanted the Galatians to be zealous for the right things. As they focus on the gospel, all national and cultural and socioeconomic barriers, they break down. The gospel message does the exact opposite of what the Judaizers were trying to do to the Galatians. The Judaizers wanted to erect more barriers, but the gospel comes and breaks those barriers down. And Paul has gone to great lengths already to show that the promise to Abraham was meant to be universal. It's bigger than just Jewish people. But here come the Judaizers who are using the law to promote their nationalistic tendencies. And in order to win the Galatians to their way of thinking, they try to flatter them. They come and tickle their ears. Paul says the Judaizers are making much of you so that you might turn and make much of them. We see in verse 17 where Paul writes, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out from the gospel that you may make much of them. The Judaizers want the Galatians to think much of them, to flatter them in return. And it's always a danger in the Christian journey when leaders crave the approval and affirmation of their followers. The Judaizers are leaders who want to be put on a pedestal. They want a platform, who want to be made much of. And this desire, it's in direct contradiction with how a true servant leader in Christ's kingdom is supposed to act. The goal for any Christian leader should be to become less, so that Jesus might become greater. Leaders aren't called to build their brand, 
the goal is to be zealous for Jesus. It's like John the Baptist said when people were coming to him and fawning over him in his ministry, he said, I must decrease so that Jesus might increase. And no matter how long you follow Jesus, no matter how big your leadership responsibility in the church or in the world might be, like the Galatians, we are all prone to wonder. We're prone to lose our focus on Christ. We gravitate to tangents all the time. We're prone to gravitate to strong, charismatic leaders and take our cues from them. We gravitate to our idols of comfort and beauty and control and approval. And as we do, we are leaving our first love, losing a focus on the main thing. So Paul writes, and in this portion of his letter, he invites us to refocus on the main thing. And we see that the main thing, according to Paul, is relationship with the living God. He says this in verses 8 and 9. You can look at it where we read, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Look, it likely goes without saying that there's a difference between being a slave to an idol and being in relationship with the true God. An idol comes to you and just demands more and more. It is not gracious. An idol cannot satisfy you in the ways that it promises. But in Christ, you have been released from the bondage of idolatry and you are now a child of God. You have gone from slavery to sonship. And now God is gracious with you. He can actually bring the satisfaction that your soul desires. He does not demand endlessly from you. He can uh, never break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. And Paul is pleading with the Galatians and with us to not go back to your former way of life. Don't lose focus on God's love and grace to you. Don't give that freedom and joy up for bondage and misery. We have come to know God, or rather be known by God, according to Paul. And to know someone in the Scriptures, you might know this already, it's a very personal phrase. It's to enter a personal relationship with someone. You can't do that with an idol. But according to the Scriptures, you can do it with a living God. So the goal for Paul is greater than just moralism. It's greater than adopting religious cultures and practices and customs. Those things can actually keep you from pressing towards the goal of relationship. The goal for Paul is nothing less than vibrant, joyful, thriving relationship with the living God. That's what Paul wants the Galatians to realize that they have and to move deeper and deeper into that relationship, not to pull back and opt for elementary principles, not to forsake the living God for dead idols. And like we've mentioned before, Paul has a massive degree of credibility here. Because if you know anything about Paul's life, he once kept all the Jewish customs. He once obeyed all the traditions of his Jewish fathers. In Philippians chapter 3, we read about how he was progressing further and farther than all of his peers. He could have had power and prestige and approval like we can't even imagine in his world, but he gave it all up. He considered it trash. He stopped that pursuit because Jesus had set him free from that bondage. It's what Paul is getting at when he says in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. 
In other words, Paul has become like the Galatians and giving up the Jewish customs and traditions. And now that the Galatians are adopting those very same Jewish customs and traditions, Paul is appealing to them, become like me. Walk in freedom from those burdensome traditions and customs. As we continue to explore this passage, I wonder how you'd answer this question. What is the goal of ministry? What's the goal of ministry in our church? What's the goal of your ministry as you rub shoulders with your friends and neighbors on a regular basis? Well, we get a sense of Paul's goal for ministry in verse 19 where he writes, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. At least one primary goal of ministry, there might be others, but at least one of the primary goals of ministry is that Christ might be formed in people. It's what we give our time and our resources and our energy to so that Christ might be formed more and more into people's lives. Young and old, new Christians, mature believers, men and women, all races, all nationalities. Along with Paul, we want to see Christ formed in people. The overarching goal of Paul's ministry is not approval. It's not comfort. It's not a claim. It's to see Christ formed in believers. And the Judaizers, the false teachers, could never have said that. I love how Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton College and former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, puts it in his commentary on this passage when he says this, Something happens to people who enjoy the ministry of God's Word. The more they learn the Bible, the more they start to look like Jesus Christ. They start to think the things he thinks, love the things he loves, do the things he does, even suffer the things he suffers. As Paul puts it, Christ is formed in you. That's what Christ formed in you means, to think the things Jesus thinks, to love the things he loves, to do the things he does, to suffer even at the hands of your enemies. It's to know and love him, to be known by him. And it's amazing and significant that Paul, one of the greatest theologians ever, says that what really matters is the formation of Jesus in individuals and in this community. That's the supreme goal of all of my teaching, all of my theology, all of my sleepless nights, all of my prayers for this group, that these little children that I deeply love might be formed more and more into the image of Christ. You could say that love is wanting your neighbor to have your greatest treasure. What's your greatest treasure? If love is wanting your neighbor to have your greatest treasure, I wonder what your greatest treasure is. Is it your worldview? Is your greatest treasure your politics? Is it your race and your culture? Is it your insight and wisdom into cultural issues of our day? Is it your material resources? Well, whether you know it or not, your greatest treasure is Jesus. Jesus being formed in us is the goal of Paul's ministry. After all, something is being formed in you. There is something being shaped and cultivated in your heart and soul. And so the question becomes, what is it? What's being formed in you? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Maybe it's anxiety. And you're being formed into ever-increasing anxiety as you take in the noxious fumes of social media and entertainment news. Maybe it's hatred, where all you want to do is see your enemies put down and defeated and disregarded. Maybe it's pride, 
where you rely more and more on your moral record and your good life choices to make yourself feel worthwhile and better than other people. Maybe it's cynicism. Maybe you're even internally rolling your eyes right now. Thankfully, you're not doing it externally. Because it sounds like Jesus being formed in you as the supreme goal in your life just sounds too naive and elementary. We are all being formed by something. And things like anxiety and hatred and pride and cynicism, all those things, they take your life. They demand more, but Jesus comes and he gives you life. He wants you to walk in joy. And we can drill down even deeper to identify where our souls need attention. Some questions we could ask are, does church make you more anxious? Does church make you more... I know that can sound like a strange question. But are you so concerned with doing liturgy right or getting Christmas and Easter right or wearing the right clothes or singing only the right songs, whether they be ancient hymns or or new tunes or making sure others know the right way to parent their children in the worship service than with Jesus being formed in you? If those other things are what's primarily on your mind on a Sunday morning, anxiety is being formed in you. Or we could ask... And I tread here with trembling and hopefully lightness because I'm right there with everybody else. Do your news outlets and social media feeds make you more angry and fearful? Those things that have an enormous unseen impact in how we're being formed. If you're on social media or the blogosphere, which I sometimes am, it is forming joy in your life or it's forming more anger and fear. And I know it can bring joy. It can be entertaining. But if you're always engaged in hot theological and cultural discussions on those platforms, I bet it's not joyful. I bet it's not feeding your soul in the way that leads you to further joy and freedom in Christ. Those are unrelational discussions. You know that. I know that. It'd be better for us to focus on the people and the issues that we actually experience, those we actually rub shoulders with. The world is impacted most when we're focused on issues that we can actually reach out and affect. Or we could ask, do you need Jesus for any of the things that you want to see happen in the world? Are there any relational strains that you're experiencing or dreams that you have for your kids and your family or goals that you have for your mission in this world that would require Jesus to be radically involved to see them happen? Another way to ask that is this, are are you prone to cynicism or do you have a hopeful enough vision for life that Jesus has to be involved, has to be formed in your life? And I know that sometimes we can believe that we can do life without Jesus because I believe that. When I believe that, which I often do, that's a sign of cynicism in my own life where I refuse to really live in hope and trust in Christ. Back to Paul's hope for our church. Is Jesus being formed in you? Something is. Are we coming to know and love Jesus more and more as we grow in the Christian life? And I don't mind being basic. A good barometer for us might be to ask, when is the last time you said, Jesus, I love you? Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you to make me look more like you in how I relate with others and how I relate with my friends and my enemies and how I engage unbelievers in what I love and what I admire. 
You need to be formed by Jesus because you live in a fallen world where you will be disappointed. You'll be disappointed by the church. You'll be disappointed by your pastor. You'll be disappointed by your Christian friends, by your children, by your spouses, by your family members. You'll be disappointed by movements that are taking place in the culture, but you will never ultimately be disappointed by Jesus. He always loves you perfectly. So sit with him and thank him, worship him, ask God to form more of Jesus in your own life because that is the pathway to joy and freedom. And I'll close with something that was pointed out to me this week pertaining to Psalm 119. I know that's a large jump, but go with me for a minute. Some of you know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible and it's a psalm that is focused on what it looks like to love God's law, to revere his commands, to walk according to his rules. And after 175 verses, that's how many verses that psalm has, on the beauty of God's law and commands and rules, you know how it ends in verse 176? You'd expect the psalmist at that point to say, let's go and keep God's law. You've been trained, now let's step up. But he doesn't say that. At the very end of the psalm, in verse 176, the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Even after 175 verses of drilling God's laws deep into his bones, the psalmist is still prone to lose focus. Still prone to wander like a lost sheep away from God. He's just like us. And the point I want us to see is that the law will not come and find you when you're lost. You will never be rescued by the law. But Jesus, he will come and find you. You can be rescued by his grace. While we often lose our focus on God, he will never lose his focus on you. If you are in him, you have come to be known by him. He never forgets you. And if that's not compelling motivation to stay focused on him, to walk in the freedom and joy that Christ has won for you, I don't know what is. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you are one who has come to seek and to save the lost. We thank you that you are one who longs to form us more and more into your image. And we just pray that you would do that. Lord, we love you. We long to love the things you love and to desire the things you desire, to hate the things that you hate, to be formed more and more into your image. And we pray that you would do that even through our worship this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.